know, there were all these musicians who died, Jimi Hendrix and others who died in the late 60s and early 1970s, and she insisted they were all connected to each other. Yeah. At the time of the Watergate arrest, uh, he was part of and knew of the plans uh, through Squad 19 and the other operations of the planning of killing Richard Nixon, which would be the next step. Through it all, community radio had to figure out how far out do we want to get about this stuff. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmanel. I'm one of your hosts. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein, other host of Radio Survivor. And joining us via Skype from San Francisco is our friend and colleague, Matthew Lassar. Gentlemen, nice to be here. We're so glad to have you here. And uh, today we're going to talk about conspiracy theories and community radio. And no, not conspiracy theories about community radio, because certainly... Although those will probably come up, if we're lucky. That that certainly is something which uh, comes up. But more about uh, community radio's relationship to the broadcast dissemination of conspiracy theories. Yeah, and we're going to take it back to the 1970s, which is so comforting in a way. I don't want to talk about 2017 conspiracy theories. Those are scary. I like I like nineteen seventy eight conspiracy. Yeah, theory. and yet you know, in some ways, some things haven't changed. That's so, thing, so we'll yeah. definitely be digging <laughs> into that with uh, Matthew in a moment or two. First up, though, we do have an update from the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, it seems like this is going to be a regular thing here on the show because there's a lot of there's things lot on the docket. And the thing we've been covering for the last few weeks is network neutrality, the open internet rules, which have been in place now for just about two years, which provide uh, recourse for consumers, for citizens, to be ensure that your internet service treats all data equally. That data, whether it's coming from uh, a community news site or coming from Netflix or coming from Comcast or coming from Alex Jones. Yeah, or, you know, I, I, we, always uh, mention, we always mention major media and video streaming. And it, it occurs to me that one of the most important uses of the Internet that we want to stay free is just the person to person data right. transfer. Indeed. That I want to be able to send my colleague a, a whole. A, high definition video and I don't want to have to pay extra for for him to be able to get that or her uh or in, for in it to hour. be slowed down yeah. right so that it takes hours and hours and hours where it normally should take you know a few minutes right but, so yeah a so, free internet so that we all can use it equally these are the principles under attack and uh the FCC uh just had their open meeting for May on May 18th And as expected, voted along party lines, which currently is two Republican commissioners to one, to open up the rulemaking to rolling back the open internet rules. You know, as we've discussed, we don't want to get too much into it. We can, folks who want to get uh, a little bit more background can go to our last two shows at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast if, if you missed it. And you can hear uh, from Professor Christopher Terry, who teaches at the University of Minnesota. And then we talked a bit about it last week as well to get more into it. But essentially, this uh, notice of proposed rulemaking. So the rules have not passed, but these are proposed rules from essentially the chairman, Commissioner Ajit Pai, who is a Trump appointee or appointed at least as commissioner, and he is a Republican. The, it proposes to end Title II regulation of the internet. And this is the regulation of the internet that treats it as a common carrier, which puts in place this idea that all data is, yeah. is created equally. Which I always like to equally. talk about, like the phone lines. Yeah. 
It's just something that that is just there and it works. And uh, you can get a phone call from anyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and there's no additional payment uh, to get a phone call from your mom or dad than there is to uh, get a phone call uh, from your best friend. People do still talk on the phone, I think, right? I'm not that old yet, right? We'll find out. It also intends to reinstate that mobile broadband is a private mobile service. Again, taking it out of this idea that it's a regulated utility. The internet that most people use on a regular daily basis is no longer necessarily the internet they thought it was. It would also eliminate the general conduct standard for reviewing possible violations of open internet principles not covered under the rules. So this is an opportunity that... that General uh, conduct Yeah, standard. basically the idea is that, you know, maybe it looks like on, on the face of something that it would sort of squeak by under the given rules. But if you can make a case why, uh, you know, sort of under general conduct, meaning like this is still exceptional conduct. Like what they're doing to my internet data, how they're how they're treating it, uh, seems fishy, right? It gives you an opportunity to have that reviewed by the FCC, right? It's it's sort of the understanding that you set these rules, but the world changes, right? And and the FCC is an administrative body, right? They, they're not judges per se, and so they really do need these rules to kind of uh, dictate how they go about their business. And then finally, it seeks comment on whether to keep, modify, or eliminate uh, rules against blocking, throttling, or paid prioritization, right? And those are the big things that we've been looking out for. Title II is sort of the legal structure that gives the FCC the authority to do all of these things. By classifying internet under Title II, it's sort of saying, yes, now the FCC is able to regulate the internet and protect consumers. Um, This last part is, you know, sort of the FCC asking, and, you know, we'll do all of this plus... There are these rules that very specifically state how your internet service provider cannot block content, cannot throttle, meaning they can't slow something down, or can't take paid prioritization. And that would be, let's say Netflix would pay Comcast an extra few million dollars to get a fast pipeline to you uh, while Hulu didn't. You know, or you know, or your local public access TV station, uh, which might be streaming on the internet, does not uh, have the money to pay for right. that prioritization. And that, that that throttling or that blocking is something that was happening once in the recent past, where uh, websites that some people were using to share copyrighted material uh, without um, or uncopyrighted material right. in some cases. Well, that was yeah. A lot of people might have been sharing Hollywood films and. Uh, and corporate uh, music, and some people were sharing public domain uh, arts, and and everything on that one website was being blocked. And and one of the one of the beloved nerds who was uploading Edison reels, yes, out of copyright in the public yeah, domain, uh, proved that he was that that Comcast was blocking his ability his, to share those Edison reels with his friends. Yeah, blocking BitTorrent traffic. So. This has now been opened up. Not a conspiracy theory. Yes, yes, indeed. (laughs) Uh, So now this proposal is opened up for public comment. I think uh, the official uh, sort of shot clock, so to speak, opens up when it is published in the Federal Register, which will happen in a week or two. Uh, And that's an opportunity then for any member of the public or interested parties in the industry, anyone whatsoever, to comment and tell the FCC what they think about this. And then 
after that comment period, there's a reply comment period, which you will have the opportunity to say, hey, I read what Comcast wrote and I disagree, or I read what Google wrote, I disagree, or Joe Blow, or these 1,200 other people, I disagree with what they said, or I agree with them, and here's why. And then the FCC goes back and is supposed to yeah, review these I, comments and supposed I have to, a question uh, for Matthew. Decisions. Why do those questions, why do those comments matter at all if we know that it's two to one? Well, I think that the big question, I mean, looking past the the comment section, you have to start looking at the lawsuits. I think that once the FCC uh, makes its decision, uh, the chances are pretty good that there'll be lawsuits and challenges. I mean, there were certainly lawsuits for every single FCC decision um, that was made regarding net neutrality coming from the ISPs, right? I mean, and and the same thing with the media ownership rules. They've been pretty much they've been pretty much vetted by lawsuits um, all the way back, um, um, going back decades. At this point, there's no question in my mind that if the FCC reverses all the you know this Title II um, uh, a system of of regulating net neutrality, that um, that the the ad, the public interest advocates um, that want to keep that are going to sue the Federal Communications Commission. The question is is how is that going to happen? And my get my best guess at this point is is that the thing to look at is. The requirement of the FCC under the Administrative Procedures Act, which is a law that was passed after the Second World War governing all regulatory agencies um, in, in the federal government, is the thing to look at. The Administrative Procedures Act says that if you change your rules, if you're a government agency and you change your rules, you have to have a good, clear and an adequate reason for why you change them. You just can't arbitrarily change them. And in fact, when it came to the FCC's indecency rules, the Supreme Court not too long ago basically said that the FCC didn't come up with a good enough rationale for changing its um, its rules and, and told them they had to do it again. I think that the same thing is, is – same potential is here. I think that what is very likely to happen is that the FCC is going to um, – you know, past three to two, some kind of um, revocation of, of of its title two or rules. two to one in this case. Two to one or, still. Yeah, right. are, are we that gridlocked? Yes. in America. Or or or, or two, you know, two to one. I'm sorry, two to one at this point. Um, they're gonna, you know, by a major by the Republican majority, they're gonna yeah. um, they'll overturn the rules. And then the question is, is whether or not the reasons that they gave have one. Um, you know, some logical basis, whether they're, you know, procedurally um, um, good and whether the facts that they offer are, are, are worthy. And I think that what's really important to, is in this notice of proposed rulemaking is to look at the facts that they're using, the basis that they're using, the factual basis um, that they're using to, and to, 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 to overturn these rules and whether those facts are in fact whether they have a basis in fact, I'm sorry to be redundant. <laughs> it's a tautology. It's okay. So, so one, one supposed fact that's been contested quite a bit already uh, is that uh, the Ajit Pai administration at the FCC has contended that broadband infrastructure rollout has been suppressed since the passage of the open internet rules. 
Um, and this is something which uh, the public interest community and even uh, Commissioner Mignon Clyburn, the, the sole Democrat on the commission, have vociferously contested and said there's no evidence for this. All evidence is that uh, broadband rollout has continued apace, if not accelerated in the last two years. And so it's, are you saying it's really matters of fact like that and proving those facts or, or figuring out how it's even measured? Because I'm sure it'll be it'll come down to some sort of arcane metrics argument that that's the sort of thing that you want to have in the record, which will actually make a difference uh, in front of uh, a court two years down the line. Yes. Now, there's a complexity here. There are all kinds of arcane rules and disagreements about to what extent um, a court can be an expert agency. That mm-hmm. is to say, to what extent a, you know a court can a court can play a role as an expert as an expert in these things. And there is a thing called the Chevron defense, which says that courts should defer um, to government agencies. But interestingly, um, it's my understanding that our new addition to the Supreme Court. Um, Mr. Gorsuch has been a critic of some of those ideas hmm. and that other judges have been a critic of, of those ideas. Which ideas so are there's, those? Oh, what's that? Which, which ideas specifically? The idea that courts should defer oh. to the expertise of a government agency. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out after the federal communication changes um, its rules because this is a big pivot. I mean, this is, you know, the FCC just came up with these rules and now, you know, the FCC is saying, no, you know, we don't like these rules we just made. And so they're really going to have to make a very, very strong case before the courts, I think, um, that that the previous FCC just got everything all wrong. And I think that there's an opportunity for challenging them, but it's going to be tricky. So that means paying a lot of attention to what the advocates for rollback of Title II say, um, paying a lot of attention to the factual basis um, of, the, of the rollback. And so those are, those are several possibilities on the courts. There's also, I hate to sound like a, a, an incredible optimist, um, but there's also the possibility that, con- that, 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 that the White House and Congress um, will be very different at some point, if the, not in the near future, you know, within the next three or four years, depending on God knows what happens in Washington, D.C. over the next um, three or four years. I think that we all have to acknowledge that the um, electorate is quite volatile these days. We have no um, idea what's going to be happening in the next six days. Right. <laughs> yes. No, you're, we, you're we're right. recording here on a Friday. The show gets released on Tuesday. And at this, at the way things have been happening, we don't know. Are, are we going to miss something and then huge it, in that interim? It gets released on the internet on Tuesday, <laughs> and, then it, and then it airs on locally here in Portland on a Friday – following and it's what universe will we be living in by that point is yeah. up in the air so 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 the question this is the question becomes a what will congress look like what will the white house look like and what will the what will as a consequence the fcc look like three years from now yeah and as you both know these proceedings can go on and on and on forever yeah and, and um, even the open internet proceeding i mean took quite a bit of time because initially uh, the rules that previous chairman uh, under Obama came up with sucked. 
they basically permitted there to be throttling or paid prioritization only under uh, under a certain standard. It would be sort of commercially acceptable standard. It mm. was some wishy washy term, and there was such a hum- uh, uh, such a big outcry that that he he reversed himself and wrote strong open internet rules. Which you know, to your point about the the Chevron defense there, Matthew uh, have been upheld by the First Circuit Court of Appeals, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the circuit court that hears most of these expert agency appeals, that hears things, appeals from the EPA, hears appeals the Department of Commerce, from the FDA, FCC, etc. So if you have sort of an expert court out there, it is that court. Um, and the FCC, of course, has been bogged down in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals over its media ownership rules. Yeah, right. Um, and so far... There's been no question about these courts' ability to rule on these things, so it would be it would be quite a uh, it would be quite a turn of luck if all of a sudden the D.C. Circuit or the Third Circuit Court of Appeals were to have their expertise questioned in any significant sort of way. Uh, most recently, the entire uh, First Circuit Court of Appeals refused to hear en banc uh, the challenge against the open internet rules. That means that normally uh, the first hearing is with like three judges yeah. of, the, of the appeals court. And yes. then if you don't like their decision, you can appeal to the full court, which is, I'm not even sure, I think it's maybe seven judges. I see all of this as a huge tabletop game yeah, that's right it's a very complex it is, and appeals it court is a bingo. Huge, it is huge, a huge tabletop game and um time may be on our side depending on how the larger politics of the country yeah. they keep uh, moving the pieces play inches, it and inches but, but here's our, but yeah. here's the advice that i would give um our listeners who want to participate in this really pay attention to what the fcc says in its proceedings about the impact of the of title two rules on um, broadband rollout and give feedback about what's going on in your area. Uh, Matthew, can you explain then again what Title II impact on broadband rollout means in a uh, in slightly well, more the FCC is argu- The FCC is arguing that net neutrality is basically um, discouraging the ISPs from rolling out broadband. Ah, right. That's basically what they're saying. And, and, and I can say just here in Portland, Oregon, where I live, where, where, where Eric lives, uh, one of our local uh, internet service providers has been busy apace rolling fiber out. Sure, sure, sure. But we live in the hottest real estate market in the country. Well, but what that, about but people that out in the states? Yeah, but that, that doesn't – that doesn't make a difference. It doesn't change the fact that it's happening. The very fact that, that there's been broadband rollout of mm-hmm. a significant sort doesn't matter where you are. The fact that it's happening – it's just still happening. Wouldn't they argue though that it's not happening enough in in rural areas because it's? Because but then you have this. to then you have to kind of compare it against the period before that, right? So it's a comparative but, but, argument. But the important thing is for the, our listeners is is to follow this proceeding and then answer the answer the implied question, which is: Is in your area um, net neutrality suppressing rollout? What evidence? You know what's going on in your community that would either confirm or um, uh, challenge that assertion, and well, I think that that's that that's the key place that our listeners can participate um, in the FCC's proceeding in a in in a really constructive way. And so we'll bring on uh, Professor Christopher Terry again. I'm sure he'll be glad to join us to help break down what is in this actual rulemaking. And we'll try – I think that, that, that that's an important point you bring up, Matthews, to try and make this practical. 
you know, what, you know, if you're going to send your comments to the FCC, what to focus on. So I think that that's a great recommendation. Yeah, I'm sure right. There's some other I recommendations mean, to I, focus on as well. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, lots of people are going to write in and they're going to say, we, I don't want net neutrality roll, rolled back. But the FCC is, um, is compelled to take these comments much more seriously and put them in the record. You know, and 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 and, it, and integrate them into the written record if they contain detailed information about what's going on in your local community. Also, another thing that you can do that's really important. I'm talking right now to the to the listeners of our show is get together with a couple of friends. Just call yourself the ad hoc committee of such and such a place about um about open internet. It's create an organization and write to the Federal Communications Commission as a group. Concerned um, citizens for uh, data freedom or something. Right. Something like that. If you can just get three people, three of your friends and, you know, write something together, the FCC takes those kind of those kind of groups statements. I've seen this for years. As you know, I've like followed these proceedings, you know, for way too much in my life. Um, and um, and they take those kind of things very seriously. Cool. College um, clubs, you know, so 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 think about, you know, think think about participating in the FCC, um, you know, along those terms, not just sending, you know, these sort of, you know, website crashing, you know, tsunamis of messages that, you know, are very impressive to the media. You know, everybody writes about it. You know, John Oliver crashed the FCC last week. Um, that kind of stuff is lots of fun. But the stuff that gets really put into the record is where you give the FCC specific information relevant to the questions they're asking based on what's going on in your community. And, and there's a case in point here. Uh, we're going to shift. Uh, we're going to shift topics here. But LPFM, low power FM. One of the reasons it came into being was because of a group of people who called themselves the Amherst Alliance. That was really just a loose uh, kind of association of a few interested engineers, a lawyer, and some other communitarian sorts of broadcasters who proposed to the FCC in 1997 that they ought to create a low-power radio service. It is their proposal which kicked off the rulemaking that eventually ended up is low power FM. These were not industry insiders. They were not FCC insiders. They were, for all intents and purposes, just citizens with a little bit of uh, of uh, kind of uh, get up and go and some expertise, certainly. But who, be sort of by creating this this group, the Amherst Alliance, got the attention. And the reason I bring it up in particular is because of Matthew's point. But we, I do want to uh, sort of pass along the news uh, of an important passing. Nick Leggett, who is a member of the Amherst Alliance. He's a radio engineer, recently passed, we learned, uh, in this past week. He died April 26th in Virginia after a long battle with cancer. And it is his engineering expertise that he lent to that initial rulemaking, which helped create Low Power FM. And he was a staunch advocate for community radio, staunch advocate for Low Power FM. He's a big advocate of, of there being... Uh, lower watt services. Just in case we have some new listeners, Matthew, can you put low power FM into context? Uh, <laughs> Paul's making a face like I just set you up for for failure. Can you put it into three sentences? Well, low power FM is um, a low wattage radio station, or a radio station at a relatively low wattage is uh, hundred watts that can um, basically um, broadcast to a 
a comparatively small area of um, of a city or or rural area, and those things. And there's been a tremendous struggle about that. And the FCC has recently rolled out a couple of thousand licenses. Um, for low power FM, and we've been following that on Radio Survivor right. for quite a while. And and those couple thousand licenses represent a, a sort of growth in small radio that uh, that that we haven't seen before. It's in this unprecedented. Country. It's an unprecedented growth in community. And it, radio. It's happened in the last ten years. Yes, and sort of under the radar since radio is uh, the least sexy of all topics to write about on BuzzFeed or whatever. Uh, no but likely in your community, wherever you are. There are new low power community radio stations that are on the air or just going on the air. And so we owe a great debt of gratitude to Nick Leggett. It's and 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 we're sorry for his passing and and certainly want to extend our condolences to his family. Uh, he did great work and radio is better because of it. And uh, you can learn more about Nick at our website, radiosurvivor.com. We'll also have a link to that in our show notes. You go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Look for episode number 92. And you are listening to Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Riesmandel. With me is Eric Klein. Joining us uh, via Skype from San Francisco is Matthew Lassar. He's a co-founder of radiosurvivor.com as well. Matthew, you teach uh, history at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and you're the author of the book Radio 2.0, which is is like the latest and greatest summation of where radio is now and where radio is going. It's I would say it's it's sort of a, an authoritative text about the state of radio. So on top of being our our co-founder, we want to make sure people know about your other uh, bona fides but, there. But today, what's important about Matthew's uh, resume is that he's teaching a class at UC Santa Cruz on conspiracy theories. I am. I'm teaching a course called Conspiracy Planet. It's about the history of really it's about the history of conspiracy theories around the world um, in the 20th century but it's mostly about conspiracy theories and conspiracies and their relationship to each other um, in the United States from the um, first world war up until uh, more or less the pre- the present and um, as a as a consequence of that I've been rummaging around YouTube which by the way in case you didn't know which everybody knows is a great place for conspiracy um, uh, people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, and um, I've been I've been looking up um, the great opus of one of the um, great conspiracy um, uh, voices of community radio in the 1970s and 1980s, May Brussel, May Brussel, who um, had a um, a show out of Carmel on the Sea and out of um, KAZU back when it was at Pacific Grove in California, small small city in California on the coast. Y- yes. And um, I and 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 almost everything, as far as I can tell, that May Brussel um, said on those on those radio stations is available on the May Brussel archive. Yeah, let's um, on YouTube. Let's take a let's take a minute out of the show and just listen to a little bit of May Russell so that we can get a taste, and then we'll come back and talk. Those people involved in this group, the domestic intelligence group, were the officials of the FBI the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, and the Military Services. Hoover died in 1972. I believe that he was murdered uh, in May of 72 in order to get this program going that the Pentagon wanted. The Pentagon wanted to combine the FBI, CIA, under their Navy Intelligence, Defense Intelligence, Army Air Force agencies. 
It was James McCord, the liaison of the CIA to the Pentagon, who blew the whistle on these plans at the time of Watergate. He told Judge Sirica that we had the formation of a possible Gestapo. He compared it to Hitler's Germany. And uh, at the time of the Watergate arrest, uh, he was part of and knew of the plans uh, through Squad 19 and the other operations of the planning of killing Richard Nixon, which would be the next step. So that's May Brussel of the Dialogue Conspiracy radio program, which aired uh, in the late 70s and early 80s on uh, on what station again, Matthew? Um, there was is KAZU FM and KLRB FM. Um, this is like from the 1970s through the ni- through the 1980s. And why have you picked May's program out to share? Well, she was very, very influential. Very influential. She she had a really big following across the United States, across community radio stations, the Pacifica stations, but also other stations in New York, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and Los Angeles. Um, she was big pals with Paul Krasner, who had a um, uh, you know a sort of a newsletter out of New York, and he was very, very involved in the Yippie movement. And you know, Krasner and and she were you know sort of. Um, allies to a large extent. Um, boosting she, each she, other's she, signal. Yeah, you're boosting each other's signal. Um, she also appears to have had, you know, admirers such as John Lennon and others who speaking of who conspiracy li- theories, you know, who li- who listened to her listened to her show. And um, I can't honestly say that I agree with much of what she um, said um, during her during her her her, her career <laughs> as a as a you know as 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 the host of her show conspiracy dialogue but i um i i i define her in as a sort of a meta conspiracy theorist that is to say she was she was constantly sort of linking all these different yeah. con- think these events to each other i mean she says in one of her um shows to open up watergate um i consider opening up the dorothy hunt plane crash, the death of J. Edgar Hoover, the shooting of George Wallace, the accident at Chappaquiddick, and back to 1968, the Robert Kennedy assassination. You know, she famously, um, you know, there were all these musicians who died, Jimi Hendrix and others who died in the late 60s and early 1970s, and she insisted they were all connected to each other. Um, She was very big on um, talking about the CIA and mind control and- um, The Pentagon- the, the Pentagon and 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 you know in fairness to her, there were a lot of really shocking revelations that came out about the CIA in the nineteen seventies um, and nineteen eighties, especially their MK Ultra LSD program. So she sort of smushed everything together into this larger narrative um, about you know about the United States government, its a lot its alignment with fascists. Um, who she, she used the I word guess, fascists a lot. Yes, she used the word fascists a lot. And um, again, I can't say that um, I, I, you know, I regard much of what she said as true. Um, but I always, I must confess that I always found, um, I, I, I find listening to it to be very, very compelling. And one of the reasons for it, and I think that this is important in terms of thinking about community radio in the 1970s and the 1980s, is is that um, you know, if you think about the United States of America from the late 1960s through, um, you know, Watergate and Contragate, it was just this endless 
cavalcade of assassinations and real conspiracies. Yeah, national Watergate, traumas. W- w- tra- traumas, you know, Watergate, Contragate, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the assassination of Robert of Robert F. Kennedy, um, the killing of the killing of Malcolm X, the revelations about the CIA's MK Ultra LSD program, the yeah. Pentagon Papers, the ongoing um, op- war in Vietnam, where so the, many personal op- tragedies were hitting America as well. Where I mean, everybody knew somebody who tragically was lost uh, in that war. So every right. trauma sort of reverberates other traumas. It was a very uh, traumatic time for the country. And, uh, you know, other, you know, revelations like uh, the Tuskegee experiment, which discovered that the public health service was basically um, not deliberately not treating um, the venereal disease of these Racism. African Americans. The, Amer- the trauma Amer- of racism. <laughs> American men, you know, you know, and finally, you know, get, you know, all the way up to the 1990s and Gary Webb's revelations about the CIA's basically, you know, alliance with these drug dealers during the Contra Wars in Nicaragua and community radio. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Community radio just sort of followed all of this stuff in this um, uh, non-traditional journalistic way. And through it all, community radio had to figure out how far out do we want to get about this stuff. Yeah. Well, so, okay, a couple – it's like – it's important to recognize at this point that in the 70s and the 80s when this this radio show was popular in the underground that there was a lot less sources of information available. The internet didn't exist. It's so obvious, but we just have to say it. And so, I mean, this was the only home for – for alternative facts? Yeah, you had to otherwise, <laughs> you know, maybe find uh, a sort of an alternative bookstore yeah. that might carry uh, some literature like this uh, or look – there are sometimes magazines or zines, you know, photocopied, handmade, uh, in, you know, sort of independently distributed but, uh, yeah. uh, works. You know, you had to really look for this and it was unlikely otherwise that in the same way as you do with the internet, that you would just stumble into it the way you would if you suddenly turned into a show on community radio. Yeah, or it's just on your Facebook page. Today's a new conspiracy theory. You right, have to really right look, there, yeah. you know, and, and do and do your research in a way. And and encountering it just off the cuff was was an unusual yeah. circumstance. And that was part of its power too, that if you found this if you if someone loaned you a cassette tape of this particular community radio show, which you had never heard before. And it's so drastically different than what you just heard today on CBS. Uh, you know, you fall into a, a rabbit hole, as they say in the conspiracy theory land. And, and so, Matthew, did she have a following? I mean, it sounds she as had, though she did. She had, yes. a, she, had a really, she had a really big following. And she had a bunch of people who sort of followed her model of research, was basically just to take <laughs> these, these newspapers together. And they were referred to as the Brussels sprouts. That's funny. Um, 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 and the other thing that was fun about her was that she had all these feuds. The most famous feud she had was with Mark Lane. I think that some of your listeners, older listeners, probably know who Mark Lane was. He was a big Kennedy assassination um, mm-hmm. uh, writer, and he wrote one of the first really big blockbuster hits um, challenging the Warren Commission report, which was called Rush to Judgment. And she – and. You know, during these years, there was all this pressure on Congress to have these new um, investigations that, you know, followed up on the Warren Commission, which lot, lots of people thought was a cover up. I, I, arguably, it was a cover up, although I think it was a cover up for reasons that people don't 
necessarily understand. But you know, there were the, there were these there were these House um, committees through the 1970s, and the big struggle among all kinds of conspiracy researchers was who would have input into those congressional hearings. You know, who would get to who would get to be the you know get to actually testify and have access. And um, there are all these interesting fights between May Russell and some of her um, allies Brussels and Brats. Mark Lane <laughs> as to who would be – who were the legitimate conspiracy theorists and who, were, and, and who weren't Matthew, and over what, what issues. Matthew, speaking of legitimate conspiracy theorists, you just used the term model of research to describe how, how May Brussell uh, 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 got her ideas. And I really would love to hear you as a historian talk about – Talk about that. Like, what is the appropriate way to get information to form new ideas about uh, explaining the the difficult to explain events? And and what did May Brussel do? Well, May Brussel basically took a whole lot of of of, of news of news commentaries and and newspaper articles, connected them all together to a large extent by attaching motivations. Um, similar motivations to different government agencies and things like that. I can't say that it, it you know, listening to her, it, it all feels terribly scientific to me. I can't really spend, a, I don't think that we need, we, we can spend a whole lot of time, you know, thinking about what's the right methodology, you know, for studying um, conspiracies. I talk about it in my, my class, but I think it's, it's, it's just too, too involved. I guess um, I have to take this, your class if I want this you know, information. It's, it's, I think it's just too involved for, for this conversation. But, um, I think that it's safe to say that uh, methodologically she spread her net very far and wide <laughs> and um, and you know and basically by looking at similar events she found what she thought were similar motivations um, um, for the government and a lot of people I know people who knew who, who listened to May, May Brussel both um, on the East Coast and the West Coast her stuff was distributed um, on the WBAI and the Pacifica stations and other community radio stations. And, and you know, sometimes um, Mark Lane would be interviewed on WBAI and she would find out about it, <laughs> right? Right. And then she would send a response to WBAI in New York City, WBAI being a Pacifica radio station um, based out of, out of New York. And so there were all of these, you know, passionate disagreements among these groups of people swirling around that were, you know, program directors and station managers and other people at community radio stations who were like, you know, in some instances, you know, ready to, ready to have this stuff. And in some instances, you know, tearing their hair out, you know, given what they experienced as the kind of speculative um, nature of, um, of, of May Brussel and other um, conspiracy researchers um, um, arguments. I remember um, when I was a volunteer at, Pacifica Station, KPFA in Berkeley back in the 1980s, really tense conversations going on, you know, group conversations going on at KPFA about whether or not to run May Brussel. Yeah, um, and I can testify and, that that sort of conversation continued on into the, the early aughts of the millennium after, after 9-11. Um, and, you know, uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's a really interesting question. I used to get really bent out of shape about this. 
um, a lot at the Pacifica stations. But one of the things I began to notice is, is that these days, you know, everybody runs conspiracy theories. You know, everybody runs crazy stuff. You know, the history chat, you know, cable TV, uh, the major networks, you know. Ancient uh, aliens. Ancient aliens. I mean, it's like everybody's running this stuff now, you know. So in a sense, community radio was kind of the, you know, the pioneer forerunner um, for what everybody yeah, in the media does now. That's so that, dark, though. That's dark. You know, uh, so, so, so that um, – you know, I mean, when I look at when I look at, you know, media now, there's, you know, so much more willingness um, to, to, you know, to entertain, you know, to entertain this stuff. Um, I was just talking about Marilyn Monroe and Princess Diana, um, you know, and, um, you know, the, the, you know, the extent to which um, conversations about, you know, possible conspiracies about them continue in mainstream media um, to this day. So in a sense, Community radio in the 1970s and 80s was unique in dealing with this stuff and, um, and, and, and the much more comparatively buttoned down networks um, were, um, you know, far away from a lot of that stuff. So, you know, and one of the challenges, I think, for community radio stations and listeners, right, is that in particular community radio is there to give voice to ideas and evidence that – is not being shared in the mainstream media, which the mainstream media in many cases, either through its through sort of passive means or active means, treats yeah. or labels as fringe. Maybe this or false. isn't a just war. Maybe maybe right. our the resources of our of our country could be used in a better way than launching the following war. That's that's an easy one for me to put out there that you won't hear on right. any but, mainstream but not, media. But not merely only the conclusions. Right. Yeah. Not only the conclusion, but I, I need to put that out there because I think some of these uh, conspiracies are reckless and dangerous. Well, and right, but like that, that. It makes it very difficult, I think, yeah. for for your community radio program director because often in a community radio station, when when these shows go on the air, they don't necessarily go on the air as news programs. They're not part of the news department. They, you know, it's sort of a show. <laughs> I mean, not always, but they look, you know, I'm just thinking of. Uh, of rivalries that I've witnessed yeah, in right. radio stations. Which can happen in a news department. But often they go, you know, the, the, these shows will go on, you know, as, as sort of, it, it might as well be be a punk show or a folk show. And it just so happens it's this person sharing their ideas, right? And it doesn't get the same level of scrutiny because there's that public access aspect of community radio. But at the same time, right, is that community radio is there to expose facts and expose things happening that aren't being covered elsewhere. And it, it is that kind of difficult to to often distinguish spectrum between conspiracy theory and and uh, what is what is an actual provable fact. And and I think you know you talked about that that sort of standard of evidence, standard of research, right? And and to me, often a, a line there is that with a conspiracy theory, everything has to be just so. Right. The dominoes have to be lined up in a very particular manner. And it, you, you have to sort of uh, you have to sort of make everything work. And often, you know, when you talk about more uh, sort of scholarly historical research or not scholarly, but but historical research, which is open to scrutiny and widely accepted, you know, in a way that someone might write a popular biography, who someone who is not a scholar, but is still, uh, a, you know, a popular biographer, um, you, you need to show your work. Right. And your work needs to be open to scrutiny. You need to be able to sort of demonstrate the evidence. Where did you get that idea? Where did you get that idea? Where did it come together? And and <laughs> yeah, you, you insights can... into, into, you know, insights into intention. OK. Yeah. Are where these things fall apart. You can hear Mae Brussels on her show 
uh, hoping that something is the way she needs it to be because she wants to believe that this is what happened with that person and that gun. It has to be this way. And then the person will go like, actually, it's not how it happened. And she lets it drop. Right. And so let me take for, for as a parallel, someone like Noam Chomsky, okay, who is a very popular on community radio and has been for a very long time. He is a scholar, right? He's a linguist and historian. He, he, he writes in political economy and, you know, often has been uh, derided by mainstream uh, news sources. I think Ted Koppel sort of famously once said that he's from Neptune, okay? Um, you know, and who writes critically about, uh, you know, the political and economic sphere of the United States, our, our engagement, our, our yeah. foreign policy, and but whose work very rarely gets into intention, right? Is very much about facts, is and and, and certainly there's a theoretical component. He puts forward a thesis about political economic action, which frames what he does, and and you know is subject to to scrutiny and, and to dialogue in a way. And I'm not necessarily saying that you can necessarily have that dialogue with Noam himself, but but you, you can scrutinize the facts, you can scrutinize the footnotes. Oh, I've heard I've heard some dialogue on community radio with Noam Chomsky from people who disagree with he him. Doesn't tend to t- he doesn't tend to take it well. Right, well, <laughs> but, you know, it, but it exists. You know, yeah, yeah. one thing that's important about Noam Chomsky is, and this is interesting you bring him up, is that he's a big critic of conspiracy theories. Right. Yeah, precisely. That's why we I can't part- just we can't just do stuff that makes us feel good, right? Or think stuff that makes us feel good, you know. And 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 it is that things don't have to be just so. And and often, uh, you know, sort of a hallmark of research that he does and other people in 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 that tradition do is it's it's is it is mountains of evidence. Right. It's not tendrils of evidence. It is mountains of evidence. Uh, you're not relying on one little fact. That is that you sort of pull out of a sea. Uh, instead, you're saying, "Look at this preponderance of evidence." Yeah, that I like the showing your work. Concept you know, and too. the that showing your lot. work, and, and 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 so if you take this one little fact and pull it out, and you, my my house of cards doesn't fall down, right? Because it's right. built on a rock, and 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 that's not you know I don't want to get too far into any any particular uh, uh, you know assessment of it, of his work so much as to sort of point out that that that's sort of an example of somebody who's popular in community radio and program, programs like alternative radio, etc., uh, where. He's revealing quite a bit that's that fa- falls far outside the mainstream of what you get, uh, e- even in right. publications like Rolling Stone sometimes, and yet uh, doesn't fall into this into the conspiracy side of the spectrum. It's funny that you mentioned Rolling Stone, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah, so I, I, I'm going <laughs> to read. They've been they've had a little trouble with uh, showing their work lately. Yeah, they, well, the, where they had one. <laughs> particular large problem with showing their work, but it's not necessarily an endemic problem. But they, they, they did get <laughs> Thank caught. Thank you for pointing that out. They, they did get caught in, in, with, uh, in one particular uh, egregious case. Uh, you are listening to Radio Survivor, <laughs> and we are talking about conspiracy theories and, and community radio. With us is Matthew Lassar. He's a co-founder of RadioSurvivor.com. He teaches history at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and he's currently teaching a course or finishing teaching a course about conspiracy theories. I'm Paul Reisman. I'm, I'm one of your hosts, and I'm, with me is I'm Eric, Eric Klein. Klein. I'm really excited we're talking about conspiracy <laughs> theories. I'm a little concerned. Well, you know, I, all I keep hearing as we talk about May Brussel, who you know, the conspiracy theorist who had shows in radio in the '70s and '80s, and how she picked fights 
right? With other conspiracy theorists. <laughs> I, I, all I hear, right. I keep having these, these not flashbacks, but four flashes to what goes on now, yeah. uh, between, uh, you know, websites like Breitbart, uh, yeah. people like Drudge, uh, Alex Jones, and, and and into other other areas who Well, you know, all, Alex Jones started out out of a community media venue, a cable access right. um, uh, you know, a, 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 a venue out of out of Austin. I mean, that's where he sort of began Cut his, his stuff. And, yeah. and then he got onto this, um, you know, this, this streaming internet Genesis communications network with a whole bunch of other um, um, people, and then his stuff got picked up by AM radio stations. Is and he on radio? Is he um, actually on radio? I'm, I'm not certain he's actually on radio. Well, he was for a he while. He was for a while. I mean, okay, he, he was for a while getting picked up on various um, AM Early days. A, yeah. AM okay. AM radio stations. Now I think he's just a full on, you know, internet internet podcast uh, st- yeah. streaming st- streaming ent- entity. But he had this sort of complicated mix of internet internet radio and cable access um, and AM. Um, you know, I mean, a, a it's, it's kind of like whoever will take it in a way, I think, is the way this stuff builds. But so what happened to Mae Brussel? So she was popular in the 70s and 80s on community stations like KZU. Oh, she died of cancer is what happened to Mae Brussel. So did she just keep – did she keep broadcasting to the end? Yeah, she kept broadcasting till pretty close to the end as far as as far as I can tell. I um, Don't quote me on that. But, you know, through the 1980s, um, she was um, she was doing um, – a you know, she was doing her show. And I remember – you know, there are being conversations about her in the middle in the middle 1980s about um, about whether to you know broad, broadcast her uh, on KPFA in Berkeley. So, you know, so she was distributing her show, I guess, probably bicycling cassettes, sending tapes in the mail, yes. I guess, which is the old the old Internet, as we'll call it. Um, it you know, think and I recently wrote a piece at Radio Survivor about the role of cassettes in particular in the distribution of radio. We'll put that the into worldwide the worldwide uh, cassette web. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll have that in the show notes, radio survivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 92. Um, uh, so one Matthew, of the things that's, oh. one of the things that's interesting though, about, you know, comedian media today and about media in general is that there are a lot of online newspapers now that sort of keep up with conspiracy theories. You know, they'll the, the Los Angeles Times. And there are people, you know, who really? have written books about conspiracy theories and they just sort of follow conspiracy theories and mainstream papers sort of write about them in the sense that they write about, you know, here are the th- here are the conspiracy theories that people right. are thinking about now. They don't. So not credulously, but not incredulously. It used either. to just be total silence. And now it's a, a recognition that that there is a myth circulating. Well, that sounds right. that sounds an awful lot like Art Bell or even uh George Nori uh who's taken over Coast to Coast AM, which is a nationwide broadcast late at night, right? That it's on thousands of AM stations. And and Art Bell in particular who started the program for many years. So if you if you heard ever people talking about aliens or or the Trilateral Commission or things like this late at night radio it was Art Bell's program. And he he would play this interesting role of being the not entirely credulous nor incredulous host, you know, sort of treating the person, you know, who, who called in to claim that their cat was an alien sort of equally with the person who called in to talk about uh, the savings and loan scandal. Right. And to giving them sort of the equal amount of sort of time. Conspiratorial agnosticism. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's the thing, not every, 
episode was about conspiracy theories or about something. Some things were about real factual goings on that, that would turn out to be real news and, and real, real uh, sort of uh, scandals. But at the same turn, be talking about alien abductions and Area 51 and, and things like this. And, and, and sometimes he would ask pointed questions across the board, but, but he, was, he was sort of noted for his, his wide willingness to sort of uh, uh, take people at their word, sort of, and, and, and follow their line of inquiry as far as it would go. Well, one of the things that's interesting to do with conspiracy theories in terms of you know, trying to think about them and the things that people say is trying to find the context for them. Why is it that people are thinking about this in, right now? Why is it that so many people think that Princess Diana was killed? Why is it that people still think that Marilyn Monroe was killed? What was the larger – what were the larger concerns, the, the larger you know, importance of these people that people ascribed to them um, – you know, ascribed to you know conspiracies to them. You know why did people so? Why do people continue decade after decade after decade to try to figure out who supposedly really killed John F. Kennedy? To a large extent, it was about the politics that people attributed to the Kennedy administration and the hope, for example, that they attributed to the Kennedy administration that he would somehow get the United States out of Vietnam and somehow get the United States out of um, being an empire. I think that, you know, lots of people sort of had that expectation. And so when he was killed, it was like, well, of course he was killed because um, he was trying to get the United States out of the empire or he was trying to close down the Federal Reserve. So there's always a kind of a politics to these conspiracy theories. And sometimes what's really productive is to spend less time trying to figure out the conspiracy theory as to try to figure out the larger context and the politics around the conspiracy theory and, you know, and, and talk about what are the r- larger issues um, that are swirling around, you know, this conspiracy. Yeah, I, uh, I had an insight listening to May Brussels' uh, 1978 conspiracy theories um, uh, and holding it up against uh, 2017 conspiracy theories that I might hold dear uh, just for entertainment purposes and sometimes uh, for other purposes. And uh, there, there's an emotional component to 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 engaging in these thought experiments. They they sort of um, they provide a certain catharsis. And it was fun to listen to 1978's uh, goofball ideas and know that no. Uh, the Mormon Church did not take over the United States government in the future. It, you know, like just knowing that that stuff that they were uh, convinced was happening didn't happen gave me the ability to um, take a step back from some conspiracy theories that I might hold dear in 2017 and know that there's um, there's something there's something down in the fear part of our ba- of our brains that makes these. Uh, that makes these things well. It's just like uh, punditry, take root, right? It's just like punditry. You know, when you when you take a step back and you and you examine even what what the talking head said on Fox or CNN twelve weeks ago, and you compare what they predicted or said yeah. might happen to facts, that tends to lend some coolness to it. It tends to cool things off, and I think the same right. thing w- with regard to sort of conspiracy theories from nineteen seventy eight, nineteen eighty eight, or or two thousand and sixteen. Matthew, you know, I think as we wrap up here, a question I have for you, if you can address it quickly, is, you know, so if you're at a community radio station 
All right. And, and either, and you're, and you're a program director or, or have some, some say over programming. How, how do you judge someone who wants to do a program that seems like May Brussels? It seems like conspiracy theory. And, and what is the responsibility of a community station? Uh, you know, given its, its, its open access mandate in many ways to, to try and edit, edit or, or have a say over, you know, what is it, it, over such programming? Is it irresponsible for this to be on the air? And, and how does, how does a community station deal with that? Well, you know, my big concern about community radio stations is not that they have all kinds of different people on the air, um, saying all kinds of things, some of which are quite outrageous and some of which are quite reasonable, depending on your point of view. My, big issue with community radio stations is is that they tend to segregate all these people into different little discrete chunks of space and then none of them and none of them ever talk to each other so i don't have any i mean obviously you know lewis hill um who was the founder of pacifica radio he once said um to his friend roy finch this is in the late 1940s as they were just creating kp you know getting the pacifica foundation started creating kpfa he said it's high time for people to be alienated by what they hear on the radio um and i always thought that, that was a very provocative um comment it's it's high i mean i think that what he meant was it's high time for people to be um not to just hear things that are sort of you know immediately pleasing and that just you know that they just sort of can you know can live with as they go along um, in their lives, but things that are shocking, um, things that they don't expect to hear. Um, but he always thought that that should happen within the context of of, of dialogue between a wide variety of, of of viewpoints. What I think gets community radio stations in trouble around this stuff is that you have, you know, you have this, you know, you have this regular news show at one time, and then you have this conspiracy show, you know, at some specific time, and never the twain do they meet, and never the twain do they challenge each other. And so there's, you know, there's the, there's the you know, the normal or the, you know, the normal left wing or the normal this kind of news um, at one point. And then there's this person who basically posits all these things at another, at another time. And the problem isn't that, isn't that this person is, is saying these things as so much as they're saying it in complete isolation often um, from a lot of the other people at the, at the radio station. And it becomes kind of a, an informational, you know, um, I'm looking for, you know, we're an informational sort of, you know, cordoned off space. It's the Balkanization. It's the Balkanization. So Matthew, what you're, what you're sort of saying is, is perhaps everything would be made better with more dialogue, more interchange, and that community radio stations can be, and which is in some ways was part of the vision of, of Lou Hill, uh, can be the, the site of those discussions and interchange of conflicting ideas and conflicting takes coming together. Um, I mean, that stuff is out there. Yeah, but, but there could be more. Thank you so much, Matthew Lassar, co-founder of RadioSurvivor.com, teaches history at uh, the University of California, Santa Cruz, author of the recent book, Radio 2.0. Thank you for listening to Radio Survivor. We appreciate every moment you spend with us. We are a listener and reader funded outlet. You can go to RadioSurvivor.com slash support to learn how to support us. And if you have questions or comments, or uh, want to uh, dig deeper into stuff we were talking about, there's all all of that stuff's up at the Radio Survivor webpage for this episode. RadioSurvivor.com uh, slash podcast. Look for episode 92. Of course, go to RadioSurvivor.com. Yeah, we'd for love to hear from you. About our media environment. We'd love to hear from you at podcast at RadioSurvivor.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody.